Hello, I'm Daniel. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. In this episode, we were joined by Mike Berners-Lee, who is a climate change expert, and he has a book out titled There is No Planet B, a handbook for the make or break years. So in this episode, he discussed the real practical actions that we can all take to live more sustainable lifestyles. And he was interviewed by Matthew Taylor of the RSA. We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. Hello, I'm Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the RSA. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm delighted to be here with Mike Berners-Lee. Hi, Mike. Hi. Let's just start by, uh, you're, you're slightly frazzled because of where you've been today. Just tell me where you've been, because that's interesting. Well, I've just been at a conference with Shell. The oil company. The oil company, just, and we've just been talking about the low-carbon future and, uh, you know, what they think they're doing to take them there. And I've been trying to, they've been inviting me to uh, say it like it is and comment on uh, what I think of what they're saying. And uh, to be honest, it's pretty, it's pretty uncomfortable because there is so much cognitive dissonance and there's, there's so much disconnect between what sound like plausible things at face value, but actually when you pick into that, it just doesn't make sense at all. So it... Uh, is that because Shell are deliberately kind of greenwashing and they are trying to convince people that we're on the road to sustainability and solving our problems? Or is it because they actually believe that? I think that's a very interesting question. So I, I'm starting to ask myself more carefully, you know, when people don't get some of the incredibly simple, basic and really important things about climate change... You know, why is that? And I, I'm thinking of it as it's always some blend of three types of reason. One is they just don't get it, either maybe not very smart or haven't thought about it very much or, or, or whatever. Um, and the second reason is it's just too uncomfortable for them to allow themselves to take it on board. So they just, they psychologically reject it just as a self-protection mechanism what you just called denial i guess yeah just yeah they actually deny it themselves and the third reason is that they get it and it's just cynical pursuit of vested short-term self-interest mm. and, and that's important isn't it because you would use different arguments depending on which of those three starting points people were coming from yeah and for the first person you'd kind of say look just listen that's right for the second person you kind of say look you know, you need to, if that's what you, you know, believe, you need to act on your beliefs. And for the third person, you'd need to say, you're the enemy and I'm fighting you. And you need to, well, you need to call <laughs> it out. And I think it's, you know, it's a blend of all those things within everybody, really, within all of us. Somehow, and what I find hardest is that somehow we need to treat all people uh, I think if we we're going to get through this, we need to treat all people with respect and remember that wherever they're coming from and for whatever reasons they are, you know, they're, they're still human beings and they, they still have reasons for why they hold the positions they do. I'm going to ask you to, to summarise the book in two minutes in a moment. But, but while we're on this topic, having read the book, and it is a fantastic book, I recommend everyone read it and, and, and then read it to your kids and then read it to your parents and then read it to your neighbours. I, I was thinking about it on the way here because I got off at Oxford Circus Tube Station. And at the RSA, my organisation, we're doing a project on circular economy in the fashion industry. And there's a lot of talk. And actually, one of the questions for us is, oh, lots of other people th seem to be talking about circularity in the fashion industry. And, you know, we're working with Alan MacArthur Foundation and all that. And so, well, there's a lot of activity here. Because when you're in that world, maybe the world you occupy as well of activists trying to make a difference, you know, it looks quite exciting and things seem to be changing. 
And I get off at Oxford Circus, I walk past the shops, past Miss Selfridge, past Sports Direct, past shop after shop after shop, and they are basically giving away clothes. I mean, they are selling, and cotton is a pretty carbon, it's a pretty water-intensive product, isn't it? It's issues around sustainability. These shops, I mean, as I said, they may as well be standing in the doorway and throwing it out in the street because everything's on a sale and it's, you're getting, you know, shirts for £2.99, goodness. And I, I guess... There's probably a proper term for this in behavioural psychology or social psychology, but I, I want to kind of call it the marginal distraction, that we are kind of distracted by what's happening at the margins and we fail to notice that beyond the margins, in the kind of mainstream, the core of the economy, the core activity, actually not much is changing. Is that your analysis? Well, I think I think we're in a very interesting moment right now and it's not just me that's saying this and experiencing this. I, I think... You know, a little while ago, maybe even one year ago, it really did feel as though any, anybody who really got climate change was was right on the periphery. It's becoming a lot more mainstream now, I think. I think it's starting to find its way into a lot more people's conscience, consciousness. You know, even the BBC is getting it. They're doing far better coverage, and I, I didn't, think that's but, but helping. But Mike, I didn't mean that kind of marginal. I meant marginal in the sense of the overall economy. You know, the point you make in your book, the, the, the proportion of energy from renewables is still tiny the proportion of clothes that are fully recyclable is still tiny and we yeah. get obsessed by this kind of innovation at the margins because there are so many good people doing good things and we fail to observe that the fundamentals particularly of the economy aren't yet changing anything like as much as they need no to. that's absolutely right so it's very tempting for us to get obsessed with the paper cups and the you know small wins that we can see happening but actually we need to see the big things changing and it's not it's not really at the end of the day dealing with climate change isn't all isn't just about the little bits of best practice it's about ironing out the bad practice actually we've got to make sure that none of the fossil fuel is coming out of the ground you know before too long so you're absolutely right we need to keep proportion on the small a sense of proportion on the small activities that we see that look hopeful because you know they can show us the way and they can be start points but we need to see them as small things that need to become big things Great. So we'll turn to the book in a, in a moment. I just wanted to have that conversation because I think one of the things that we need to do is to be to say if there isn't a day when we're not thinking about climate change and the environment, if we go a whole day without thinking about it, without observing something that needs to change, without thinking about something we might do, then we're probably missing the point right now. So as that had been your day and a little bit of my day, I wanted to share it. So, Mike, there is no planet B, a handbook for the make or break years. Describe the book. And maybe a little bit why you wrote it in two minutes. OK, well, I wrote it because if you really want to deal with any of the big environmental crises that we've got at the moment, such as climate change or biodiversity, it turns out that you can't deal with it by just looking at the environmental issue itself. Actually, you need to look at everything all in one go. You need to see those environmental problems as symptoms of something much bigger that's going on, which is that humans have suddenly become so powerful over the planet that we suddenly need to improve the quality of our stewardship radically in a way that we've never had to before. We're in a brand new era. Some people call it the Anthropocene. Call it what you like. But it's a, whole, it's a, it's a brand new context for humanity to be operating in. And in order to deal with it sensibly, we need to look at not just all the science and technology relating to all the environmental issues. But we need to look at these challenges through the lens of every other discipline as well. So, you know, our economics needs a rethink. A whole lot of social issues need a rethink. Our politics need a rethink. Our values need a rethink. And even the way that we think needs a rethink. Brilliant. If that sounds comprehensive, it is. 
But what's great about it is it's also, you know, you can read this book in a day. It's very well written, but it, it covers all those bases. And, and there's lots of stuff that's really quite interesting that you wouldn't expect in a, a book like this. And we'll come to that in a moment. Well, the challenge is, so we need to we need to hold all this stuff. If we want to be sensible about it, we need to hold it all in our heads in one go. You know, the science, the technology, the politics, everything around all these issues in one. And it doesn't matter how hard that, that feels. You know, that's what you have to do if you want to make sensible decisions about it. So the challenge is to put all that into a simple enough but not simplistic form and that one that's digestible so that it really can be hold, held in your head all in one go. So I thought I knew a lot about climate change and broader environmental uh, crisis that we face and, until I read the book, and it gave me all sorts of interesting new things to, to talk about. Now, I, I want, one thing, the thing I want to focus on, not exclusively, but primarily, is that although the book contains lots of new ideas for me, in the end, there's almost nothing that any thinking person could disagree with in your book. <laughs> but yet, that's the question, but yet... And I want to kind of explore why it is so hard for this to get across to people, which, which is something we talked about a little bit already. But let me take a couple of elements of this. The first is that one of the things you recognise in the book is that a lot of what's going to happen is unknown. So, you know, you talk about, you use the analogy of the, what's it called, the test when you see what something's alkaline the or acid. The litmus test. Yeah, the litmus test. You have another phrase for it in the book, I think. But you use the litmus test. Is a kind of the way in which at a particular moment a titration li- experiment titration yes. it, the the, li- the the liquid changes from alkali to acid at a particular tipping point right so mm. you have that kind of tipping point notion uh, and you also say this isn't just about climate change there are other things happening that we don't know about you make this really powerful point that it takes us a long time to get our act together globally and we may have to move much more quickly in the face of crises that we can't predict right now I get all of that but the problem of that it seems to me is that. In a way, it undermines the idea that there is a kind of cast iron prediction that you can make about climate change because it kind of says, well, there's a lot of this we don't really know about. And if it could be much worse than we think, well, then maybe it could be much better. Maybe the, there could be benign feedback loops as well as malign feedback loops. So how do we get that balance right? Telling the truth about the fact that we can't really predict the future, but at the same time saying to people, even though we can't predict everything, we can pretty damn well predict that if we don't change the whole way we do things, we're in, we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we can be certain about is the broad picture that climate change is extremely serious and it really is, it's an absolute emergency. And the uncertainties have been underplayed. So for all the good things that the IPCC have done, one of the things they haven't done a good job is talking about the uncertain, the less certain, but very nasty things that could happen that we don't understand properly but risks that we're exposed to. And, you know, maybe it's too late. And those risks are already baked in, a lot of those, aren't they? Because what's already in the atmosphere is going to be there for a long time. We could have already crossed tipping points that we can do nothing about to take us into four degrees within the next couple of decades. Now, it's not proven that that's going to happen, but it's not proven that it's not going to happen. And it's not proven that we can't, we can't deal with climate change in a way that makes it, I don't know if acceptable is the right word, but but keeps global society together. But there's everything to play for. <laughs> but we really do need to be fighting hard now. I mean, if we're not, anyone who's not getting a flutter of adrenaline when they hear some of the, you know, news headlines and we, we hear what's going on with the weather all the time now and we hear what the latest stuff is coming out of the science, you know, if we're not starting to get scared by that, then there is something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. 
Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Isn't the danger, though, that in the face of that unexpected tipping points, chaos, that we just feel a complete lack of agency? That we kind of think, well, actually, we may well have already passed that point. We, you know, w- w- what is the point in a sense of trying a kind of mm-hmm. 20 years of methodical system change to become sustainable when things may well have spiraled out of control? Well, those are really good questions. But if you, I don't know, if you fell over, overboard in a, in a boat and you felt a long way from land and you felt it was unlikely you were going to get to land, you, would you stop swimming? No, you'd, you'd go for it. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's one answer to your question, I guess. I mean, one thing we can tell is that the kind of response that we've had so far is woefully inadequate. You know, we, we know if you look at the carbon curve and you look at the fact that it is not showing any trace at all of a response to humans having noticed climate change. Uh, that tells us a lot about what won't work. So it tells us that, you know, because we all know people and businesses and countries have got targets and have made progress to all those targets, but yet at the global system level, we see no progress whatsoever. And that tells us that... And well, emissions went up last year. Oh, yeah, not, not just up. They're, they're following the same trajectory that we might have predicted that they would have gone on if we'd never noticed climate change. And, you know, really exactly the same. So that tells us that we need to interrupt the system dynamics at the global level. And more specifically, if you pick into that further, what you find is we need a global arrangement to leave the fossil fuel in the ground. And that's an incredibly simple realisation. But not one that Shell wanted to hear today. Not one that... Shell glosses over it like crazy. They talk... They talk a talk which sounds plausible at face value if you're not feeling critically minded about it, but they gloss over the need to absolutely leave the fossil fuel in the ground. And it's just a, you know, it's just a cognitive disconnect. And it's actually, it's quite frightening to be in the room with it going on because it's so plausible. Everyone's being polite to each other. Everyone's as nice as pie. Everyone's talking about how much they care. But when you just pick into it, it's absolutely not stacking up at all. And we, all of us, need to get better at challenging that, calling it out and insisting on better. Because if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. Okay. Uh, So another thing I want to explore is the kind of balance of 
a, a, a kind of pragmatic argument, and I'll come to a way of articulating this in a moment, and a broader argument, which is more utopian or more idealistic. So the pragmatic argument says, look, I don't care why you, you support sustainability. I don't care what your political politics are. I don't care what else you care about. Just come with me to save the world, as it were, right? And, you know, one way I used to put this when I used to talk to, to, to school kids when there was more climate change scepticism around was I used to say, look, ask your parents, I'd say to school kids, ask your parents about insurance. You probably know anything about insurance, but your parents spent, you know, non, not an insignificant amount of the household income, probably about 5% of your disposable income on insurance, and that's money they just waste. You don't get anything for it. No TV, no holidays, no clothes, absolutely nothing for it. And the only reason they do that is because there is a very small chance of, you know, vanishingly small chance the house might burn down. But they do it, and it's a sensible thing to do. What we have to do is just do the same on a global scale. We have to, to, to invest, you know, a certain amount of money. We have to take a certain number of actions to prevent mm. something awful happening. So that's a really pragmatic argument to try and include everybody and say, look, even if you don't believe it, it's worth ensuring. Now, the alternative is to say, no, this is about a fundamental change to the whole system. And by the way, if we do this, it won't just be sustainability. It'll be the whole world that would improve. And I want you to do me a favour. I want you to read out... Actually, you've got the book in front of you. Turn to page nine. <laughs> page it's nine. the same edition. Yeah. Turn to page nine, and I'll, inter- I'll, I'll, I'll set it up, and then I want you to read the, ch- the, the, page, the words that are in bold. So I'm starting off uh, at the top of the page, and, and you write... I don't want to prescribe too tightly because we all see things differently, thank goodness. But here is my attempt at sketching out what I think we can aim for and most of us might want. I'm not anticipating perfection, but the closer we get, the better life will be. And even trying to head in this direction should be a good experience. Here goes. This book is geared towards a future along these lines. The air is fresher. Life is healthier, longer, more relaxed, more fun and more exciting. Our diets are varied, tasty and healthy. More of us get out as much as we want to, both socially and physically. Travel is easier, but we spend less time in transit. We feel freer to live life in whatever way seems meaningful to each of us. At the time, in negotiation with other people's equal right to do likewise. There is less violence at every level. Cities are vibrant, whilst the countryside teems with wildlife. Our jobs are more interesting... And the pressures are more often self-imposed. We expect, insist on and get higher standards of trust and truth in politics, in the media and in fact everywhere. We are better connected to people around us and to our sense of the global community. We give more of our time and attention to others and we notice and enjoy more of what is going on around us. We might compete with each other for fun but where it really matters, we collaborate better than ever before. Brilliant. Mike, let's just record the middle sentence one more time because you, 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 you <laughs> yeah, lost yourself. You lost yourself. So it's a sentence that begins, we feel freer. We feel freer to live life in whatever way seems meaningful to each of us at the time, in negotiation with other people's equal right to do likewise. Now, my question is this. That there's a danger that if you are, I don't know, on the centre politically or on the right politically, what you're hearing when you hear that is, well, what this bloke's trying to do is he's trying to smuggle a left-wing agenda in using <laughs> sustainability as his kind of Trojan horse. You must have heard that kind yeah. of argument. So the, the, the balance of my very boring argument about insuring yourself versus your idealistic utopian argument, 
Which do you think is the one that works best? Well, for the insurance argument, I mean, things are a lot more serious than that. We're not talking about remote possibilities. I mean, we might as well, you know, the facts are as clear as daylight. We're talking about very high risks. And if climate change doesn't get us now, if we stay on the rising trajectories that we're on, it's only a question of time. You know, we, how hard are we going to push at it? And it's not just climate change, it's biodiversity. We've got plastics, we've got a, an antibiotics crisis, we've got ocean acidification. So, you know, our powerful species that is not look, that is not being thoughtful enough as it goes about its daily life it's as clear as daylight that we're going to come up against something bad soon so we're not talking about um just ensuring remote um possibilities in terms of right wing or left wing i think it is essential that the solutions we you know the solutions we're looking for have to transcend any party political colors i did a talk to the uh, conservatives association a couple of weeks ago and i have to say that it was more thoughtful than i than i had feared you know we there haven't was heard yet boris johnson or jeremy hunt as far as i can tell saying a single word about no and my my book is very clear that we need much higher standards of truth and trust and there's simple guidance in there on how to look out for it, how to know when you're getting it and what to do if you're not getting it. And when I took, sure enough, when I talked to the Conservative Association and they've got their job coming up of, you know, voting for their next party leader and I was imploring them to just ask themselves very carefully, who do they most trust out of the choices they've got? And, you know, make that very high on their on their criteria not 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 much sign yet that it is is there i mean it's i mean i actually until yeah. this conversation it hadn't really occurred to me but we've had you know 10 days of campaigning or so so far and we've had tax promises and you know abolishing sugar tax promises and brexit promises and migration promises not a word i mean i'm sure you know but certainly i mean these people determine the headlines that they get to a large extent neither of them has decided to put climate change in the shop window we need to be far more discerning up from we we need to insist on a far far higher quality of politician and of politics so we've been careless with the with the with our democracy and if we uh, it's essential to us that we have politicians who are really careful with the truth and we've been letting them get away with being careless with the truth all the time, routinely. You can write things, you can put things on the side of a bus that are a load of old nonsense and it's not the end of your cr- political career. You can um, you can make a slip, you can say uh, that... Um, and Claire Perry said this recently, just as one example, you know, that she said 30% of our energy comes from renewables. Actually, what she m- should have said is 30% of our electricity comes from renewables. Those are very different statements. Yeah. And actually, they have hugely different implications. And, you know, we let that go. And, you know, she, a, a politician who makes a mistake like that should be uh, called out on it again and again and again until such time as she said, OK, yep, I made a mistake explains what the mistake is, makes an effort to make sure that everybody who got the original erroneous message gets the corrected version and has explained to them the significance of what the difference between the two storylines is. Otherwise, it's the end of your I, political career. And right? I guess you say that as an academic, because as an academic, if you were caught you know, falsifying things or exaggerating, I mean, we had the case of East Anglia, of course, and there was, there was, a, there was a big pushback against what seemed to be 
to some extent, kind of tilting academic evidence towards a kind of political position. So Yeah, I mean, that was game playing, actually, because it was one small slip on one side of the argument. And actually, there were blundering errors. So what's interesting to me is that the, the standards side. you have to look, work to as an academic, which is being accountable to what you say, you're not elected by anybody, you're not making decisions, you're not making policies, but yet you are accountable at a, at a massively higher order than politicians who determine our lives. Yeah, but, you know, we can all push for higher standards of honesty from our politicians and coherence. So right now, it's quite fashionable among politicians to say that they get climate change and how important it is that we honour the Paris Agreement and, and, and go for you know, much less than two degrees and maybe even one and a half degrees. Well, that's great. That's a good step. But now we need to push them for coherence. We need to make sure that all their policies are in line with that. And if they're not, we need to ask them the question, why doesn't your aviation policy stack up against your climate change rhetoric? Uh, because, you know, is it that you didn't get there was a mismatch, in which case go away and think about it and come back when you've, when you've got a sensible proposition? Or is it that you hoped that we wouldn't get that these mm. things didn't stack? In which case we've got a real trust problem going on and you're not fit to be a politician. Now, in this book, if you looked at the chapter headings, you'd go, oh, yeah, I'm... I thought there would be a chapter about food and I thought there'd be a chapter about energy and um, you know, I thought there'd be a chapter about kind of maybe fiscal policy. I didn't think there'd be a chapter about thinking skills. <laughs> uh, so tell me why there is a chapter in a book about saving the planet by someone who's an expert on greenhouse gases about thinking skills. Because it's clear that if we're going to just, just working through the process of what kind of solutions do we need, finding that the technical solutions are available but not being adopted, just just working through the what would it take for us to set up the conditions under which we could deal with the environmental challenges that we're facing. That takes us to some types of thinking which we used not to need that much of. You know, back in the days when we could treat the world as a robust planet that was more or less immune to anything we could throw about, throw at it. And, you know, it's only, it's only very recently that we've stopped being able to get away with treating the world in that way. Um, but now we're in this new era, this brand new era. It turns out that actually there are some ways of thinking that we need to get far better at. So we need to get far better at big picture, joined up systemic thinking. And we need to get far better at global empathy because, you know, empathizing, you know, getting an emotional reaction when we hear about what's going on with the lives of other people on the other side of the world from different cultures that we're never going to meet. Because suddenly we're in a situation where we are one tribe, right, on this planet. We are one tribe, like it or not. That's not a choice, right? We just won't get by unless we have a sense that we're one tribe. And that's a new skill. And I've talked about truth and trust. Well, the skills that are involved in working out who to trust. And we need to get far sharper at that. So at the moment, you know, people are watching the telly and reading the papers or whatever and making decisions about who to trust based on uh, questions like charisma and accents and the suits people are wearing and whether they've got good catch lines and stuff like that. And those are just not criteria that will get us through in the Anthropocene. We need to be far more discerning about that. And the other, the other side to the truth debate is we need to get reflective on this. We need to start asking ourselves much more carefully, well, why do we believe the things that we believe? You know, what are we being driven by? Are we getting emotional reactions that are overriding our rational analysis? And if so, you know, we need awareness of that because otherwise it'll take us down the garden path in a way that will be very, could be very harmful for the planet. Now, my job in this interview is overwhelmingly to, to, to ask questions so that 
we can hear your ideas and hear about what's in the book. But there's always a little bit in the interview where I think, well, hold on, I've got my own ideas and I want to test them out on you. So so I, I kind of agree with you. And I like this chapter about thinking skills. And, you know, one of the, I think, nine thinking skills you advocate or the ninth is that uh, we need to be able to think about complexity, understand complexity. I completely agree with that. In fact, I, I wrote a blog post just today uh, about about that. But I worry that if action on climate change has to wait until human beings have fundamentally changed the ways in which they think, have overcome their cognitive biases, which after all, cognitive biases imprinted on us by evolution, because for 99.9% of human existence, we lived in completely different circumstances, then you know, that might, you know, you can wait for the planet to end before human beings can change all that. So yeah. I don't think you do it by, simp- I mean, the, the book is powerful, but I don't think you do it actually just by telling people to think differently. I don't even think that our education system, which tends to get the flack for all of this stuff, can expect to do it. No. I think it's about process. And, and so this is a, a point I want to share with you. I, I'm increasingly feeling that, the organisations that most interest me, the ones that I think are achieving real change, put a lot of emphasis on method and process. Yeah? Yes. They, they aren't just about what we're trying to achieve, but they think very deeply about how to achieve it. And in particular, how to engage people, how to create the kind of environments where people can hear different perspectives in safety, open up their minds, potentially change their minds. Yeah. It's interesting to me the Extinction Rebellion, one of its three demands, is around having a citizens' assembly. And now Parliament's about having a citizens' assembly. I'm a great advocate for deliberative democracy. So I think if we're going to change the way people think, it's not going to come through exhortation. It's going to be creating new processes, new methods, which enable people together to overcome these kind of cognitive frailties we've got, right? The problem is method, process, is expensive and... And you're not a great fan of journalism, as you point out in this book. A lot well, of journalism. Uh, no, I'm, I'm a great fan of good journalism. Good journalism. Absolutely. A lot of journalism. But I, you know, I say in my blog today, I know a very, very well-known national broadcaster who I've been trying to get interested in deliberative democracy. And she finally said to me yeah. a few weeks ago, in sheer frustration, Matthew, don't you understand? I'm not interested in it. It's boring. <laughs> so method okay. and process are expensive and boring. But I think unless we think about investing in new ways of doing democracy, new ways of running organisations, new times of conversation... We ain't going to get there because you've got to create different spaces because yeah. otherwise people just carry on behaving as they are. I mean, so that's sorry, that's my thesis. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm totally with you on this. So you know, Extinction Rebellion is a really good example. So I wasn't sure at all what I'd make of Extinction Rebellion when they had their protests in London. I spent a lot of time sort of just moving between the the four sites and hanging out with them a bit and feeling a bit feeble compared to all these uh, grand uh, protesters who are really, really doing a, a great job. But I wasn't sure what I'd make of it. But actually, I was really impressed with them. And they put a lot of emphasis on process. They were at pains to be transparently democratic and inclusively democratic in every decision they made. Um, and they got it, you know, they got it working for them really nicely it it was some things were a bit cumbersome but they were you know they were really working things through about how they humor as well and with a sense of humor i mean i love the fact not people know this i don't think that they focus on the bridges but they did a sit-in at greenpeace right which is a brilliant thing to do yeah yeah, and they went to greenpeace and they they did a sit-in in the in the in the foyer and they said, look, you know, you're an establishment green organization. We don't think you're radical enough. We think you're spending yeah. too much time pandering to the establishment. And, and Greenpeace, 
I'm, as I understand it, to their credit, said, no, we'll close the place for the day and we'll have a conversation with you. Yeah, great. So, you know, imagination, humor, these things are important, I think. Yeah, and and and, and that attention to, uh, uh, yeah, that uh, deli- very deliberate attention to process. So, so other things that they did well was they were at pains to make sure it was clear all the time that, you know, the, the three values I call for in the book, and one of them is respect for everybody, to treat absolutely everybody res- with respect, however tempting it might be not to. And they emphasize that all the time, you know, we respect each other, we respect the police, we respect the public, we respect all politicians, we respect the fossil fuel companies, and they were, you know, they were making sure that was part of you know, what the Extinction Rebellion movement was about. And I'm sure that's critical for getting some of the change that we need. And one of their demands is for citizens' assembly. Mm. And I really think that citizens' assemblies and citizens' juries as well are one of the really hopeful experiments in the massive improvement in the state of our democracy Mm. that we need to see. Because we're in a world now where the decisions are really complex and it absolutely does not work to throw out a referendum to the public with a whole load of mixed bag of misinformation going out there and and half the people who are voting haven't thought about it all that hard and half and a half of the information they've received isn't even accurate anyway and it's just not a way to make a detailed complex and incredibly important decision however you know a citizens assembly you know and they're not perfect and they are hard to get right but they they have the intention is you have a representative sample of the people and you put them through a proper informed process which they have a decent amount of control over hearing all sides of the argument hearing all sides of the arguments and they say what experts they want to hear and there are you know there are independent review groups going through a transparently impartial process of selecting which experts to put in front of them. And those experts get to give a bit of their own information, but more to the point, they answer questions. And, you know, so it's very carefully but set up. The thing up. is, Mike, you're absolutely preaching. To the, my annual lecture at the RSA last year was about deliberative democracy. We're involved in a campaign for it. So it's a big, you know, I completely get it. But, you know, halfway through the explanation you just gave of the things that are necessary for it to work, you know, mm-hmm. the balanced sample, the proper mediation, mm-hmm. on being clear about how it feeds into decision makers, you get halfway through that explanation, the politicians I speak to, you see their eyes glazing over. It's like, oh, no, this is far too complicated for us. So it, that's one of the challenges. We have to get people to understand the process and method. They, they, although they may, they may feel dry, uh, they are absolutely vital because, you know, if you yeah. put people in a room together who share the same view, and you get them to talk to each other, they will end up becoming more extreme. If you put people into a room properly mediated with all sides of the view, of, of opinion, they will tend to try to reach a consensus, and many of them will change their minds. So that simple bit of process, who's in the room yeah. and whether it's being mediated, makes an enormous difference to the outcome. But I've, I've worked with politicians. I, I tried to persuade Tony Blair to do Citizens' Jury. I tried to play Gordon Brown. Right. And they both said yes. And then when they found out that they couldn't control the outcome, they both watered it down into a kind of consultation process. Yeah, so it's, it's, challenge, it's very challenging, and it's a big culture shock to our political process. And but I think that's know. more hopeful than, by the way, expecting politicians to change. What, what Politicians won't change. We need to bring deliberation into the system yeah. so that representation is only part of our system rather than the whole of our system. But we've surely had a bad experience of what happens if you, if you, go, if you don't have a good quality decision-making process. You know, if the, if the Brexit process hasn't been 
being tiresome and boring than, you know, if we're going to say what, what is. So surely we, you know, that's, that gives us a lesson in how to try to do things better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we, that's another conversation. Maybe your, ne- <laughs> maybe your next book, I'll, I'll be your co-author. I'm well, a, I, I won't I'm write a book about Brexit because I'm No, about deliberation and, and deliberation. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. I want to turn to something else, which I think is another kind of really important part of this debate. And that's about our individual responsibilities. So I must feel I must feel shy in asking this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you live up to your values in your day-to-day life? Well, so, so that is a really good question. So I'm an, I'm an ordinary human being just like everybody else. You can't live in this world without being conflicted. So what I try to model is the advice that I give to everybody, which is that we should all be role models as best we can. We should uh, not beat ourselves up for our shortcomings, but we should not let ourselves off the hook on them either. So we should be trying to move forward, you know, in really substantial areas all the time. And that's and the, the personal process that we go through of sorting ourselves out and doing it in a way that makes life better, not worse, and using creativity, but also applying some discipline and working at it and, and you know, getting all the help we can where we can and just sometimes taking time over it, but finding ways, finding ways forward whenever we can get them. That process is exactly the same process as the world needs to go through actually so we learn about the global we learn about the macro through our through our personal experience of the micro so, and you know that's part so part of what is really important because it's a really important question it's a really valid question when 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 the problems we face are so global you know what can any of us do as an individual and there turns out to be loads and part of it is about the the lived experience of trying to go down that line of sorting our, ourselves out it's no easy for no easier for us as individuals that, as it is for the for the whole world do you fly i fly sometimes for ver- i try and do it for very good reasons so i flew out to silicon valley to work with one of the tech giants because i felt it was worth doing and we're all, we're all conflicted right so some of the hardest conversations are within our own families so we had a whole debate that kids wanted to go to Poland. Well, that's, they see the world, you know, it's good for them to see the world. Then they watched the Attenborough climate change, the BBC climate change program. And, and after that, they said that we don't want to fly this year. Well, that came from them. So it's so problem solved and we're taking the train somewhere. But, you know, all these things are, are tough. And, you know, you ask my kids, we're not squeaky clean in our household, but we do try and move in the right direction. So I wonder whether the, the, the way to think about this is, is, Maybe it's a little bit like smoking. So, you know, one of the good things that's happened in the world is that, you know, when you and I, you're a bit younger than me, but where... When yeah, smoking's you, a good analogy. When you and I were growing up, most people smoked. That was the norm. It was a all right of passage that you smoked. Yeah. And now the latest figures are we're down to kind of, I think, you know, getting towards only 15% of the population smoking. And and that's a good thing. And it's all sorts. And I'm very proud to have been working in number 10 when we introduced the smoking, the ban on smoking in public places. And I, I, when I, when we did that, when Tony did that, the cabinet was massively divided, you know, whereas nobody would go back to, to smoking in pubs and restaurants now. But the, the point I'm making is that what, what actually happened, you think about the history of smoking is that we have reduced the amount of smoking, which is a good thing. But at the beginning, one of the things we did was that really strong cigarettes, the cigarettes that were just kind of deathly, untipped kind of cigarettes, they went first. And in a way, isn't the same yeah. thing that we all need to try to reduce our emissions, to, to fly less, to eat yeah. less meat. But actually, there are just some things. There's, I mean, like private jets. I, I give, you know, yeah, I'm going sure. to suggest to you, 
really, there is no defence of private jets apart from maybe for kind of global politicians who absolutely have to get from point A to point B. But private jets, just to have an extra few hours on your holiday or not to have to queue up at an airport, yeah. there is simply no justification for them. And we need they social, are immoral. We need social stigma around that yeah. stuff. And that goes to that goes to the cars people are driving. If you're driving in an unnecessary thundering car or you're not, or you're leaving it idle at the tra- idling at the traffic lights or you're you know eating an irresponsible diet or you're um, chucking your clothes in the bin too readily or you're, you know, there's all these unsustainable behaviours need to have social stigma attached to them. But the cigarette... Um, but on the other hand, you don't want to make people feel wrong. You don't want to kind of... You, you don't like the idea of of, 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 of of kind of condemning half the world because they don't live up to these values. Well, so in a sense, what I'm saying is the message for most of us is try to do better, but probably there is also a message for some people, which is, you know, this just has to stop. Yeah, and we need to find a way of positioning it with with people like that because on the one hand, guilt doesn't get anybody anywhere. On the other hand, you've got to stick with the the, the reality that some behaviours are deeply, deeply unhelpful and irresponsible and, and they've got to change. But somehow we need to deliver those messages in an uncompromising and forceful way whilst being respectful of those people as human beings. And, you know, people who have massive, really high-carbon lifestyles that they know deep down, unless they're really stupid, are trashing the world and are deeply irresponsible, you know, there must be some part of them that feels pretty rubbish about that. Yeah. Almost. And, you and know, th- they, are trapped, they are trapped in a mindset that they need liberating from as well. So, you know, there's yeah. a, I think the low carbon world, sometimes people talk about it as if it's some kind of hair shirt. And there are some things about it where we're going to need to operate within constraints. Um, but, you know, it's psychologically liberating. And I actually think that in, in my vision of the, the world in which we all collectively, we finally feel as though we're getting on top of this stuff. I think the mood of the country and the mood of the, the general mood amongst people, will, we will feel great. You know, the sense that mm. we are doing the right thing will just make life feel more colourful. We'll, we'll feel like we've come alive. We'll feel it's good to be alive. Even if we're in so much trouble over climate change, it's, you know, even when you're in trouble, it still feels good to be doing the right thing. I think, you know, one way I, I've thought about this question, how to think about it, is to think about how much your, you know, the global average emission per person is per day. And then to say, if, I think in your book you say that if someone was, flies as the only passenger in a private jet, that's 10,000 times as much emissions as any individual is in the average. And so it's a good question to say, am I 10,000 times more important than another human being, because in a sense, <laughs> I'm saying that I, I deserve to be 10,000 times more polluting. So that's that's kind of one way of thinking about it, is is what are you saying about yourself when you believe your footprint can be I think there big? are some, there are a few people who would actually argue the case that maybe they are, you know, and that's, I would, well, we'll I would challenge that pretty hard. Yeah. Well, a final thing I want to look at is the impact the book has had on you. you one of the things that you, you say a lot in the book is that you want people to come back to you i'm going to remind people of what the twitter tag is if they want to communicate with you about the book it's uh, it's just uh, at mike berners lee right uh, and the email address is mike at there's no planet b.net Do, have you had much response yeah i have a load of response in fact more than i can deal with so uh, apologies now to um, hundreds of people actually who i've just I had to put on hold while I, because I, life has been pretty busy. But yeah, I've had, I've had interesting, helpful, constructive response. And I want to say about this book that I didn't write it to be the end point. I wrote it as the best starter for 10 that I could do. What I, 
want to encourage everybody to do is to do this kind of thinking as best they can. So just go and read, read this book, fantastic. Then add to it all your own knowledge and wisdom and create your own framework of understanding, which is better than the book. And then get in conversation with other people and mm. get it better still. And between us all, let's work out how to find, you know, what's going on and how to find our way through this, uh, through this situation that we're in. That's the kind of, this is, this is, I've written a book by one person. I collaborated as much as I could, as much as I practically could on the way. But what we need is a global collaboration on how we think through and act out the solutions to the situation. Absolutely. And I, 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 I thank you again for the book, because it, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, one thing that I took from it, although you don't explicitly say this, is that a day, no day should go by, given that this is the biggest crisis facing humanity in the planet, when we don't think about at least think about it and preferably do something about it. And I'm reminded of mm. a friend of my father's, a, a guy called Stan Cohen, who wrote a wonderful book called States of Denial. And what, what Stan was interested in is how people how white people in apartheid South Africa denied what was going on around them, how mm. Germans in Nazi Germany. Um, mm. And this denial concept is, is a big one in, in the climate change discourse. And I think that, you know, I think if you were a white South African and you look back and you were there during apartheid, you might think to yourself, how did I manage to just go day in, day out and not even think about, let alone do anything about what was going on around me? And I think it's the same thing for climate change, that that future generations, looking back, to be told that anybody was not thinking about this on a pretty regular basis would just say, well, that's almost a, that's almost a form of kind of psychological, it's almost a kind yeah. of mental illness. We need to help people to make these transitions. So if you think, I was in a room today with the chief exec of Shell, and if you think what it would take for him to properly look at the facts and properly look at how his company squares up against those facts. That's a big ask, actually. That's psychologically very challenging. And the amount of humble pie that needs eating one way or another. You know, people need help with this kind of thing. And I think we need to be respectful. that This is very difficult for the fossil fuel industry and, you know, for all of us. And so I think one of the, one of the tricks that we need to work out is just how do we create a situation in which everybody feels able to look at the facts without just finding themselves, without finding it so painful that just have to switch mm. off and walk away. And how can we make it so that when, when people, you know, however, however much rubbish they've got in their lifestyles, however much rubbish they've got in their businesses, when they start saying, okay, I understand that we're conflicted. I understand I'm conflicted. I understand that this is a mess, but I want to start doing the right thing from now as best I can, even though that will be a long way from perfect for a long time you know we've got to find ways of being really supportive with that process well this book is an excellent place to start and i would encourage uh, all of you listening to get a copy don't get it on amazon <laughs> walk to your nearest bookshop get a copy of there is no planet b it'll be filed under b in the non-fiction section and then not just buy it but in the queue waiting to buy it tell other people in the queue that you're buying it and why you're buying it <laughs> Mike Bernersey, thank you very much. Thank you.